Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of the American Theatre Wing and XM Satellite Radio. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We're joined today by Donald Margulies, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright, currently playrunning on Broadway, called Brooklyn Boy. He won the Pulitzer back in uh, 2000 for your show Dinner with Friends, also got the Outer Critics, the Lucille Lortel and Dramatist Guild Awards, and a Dramatist nomination for that. Welcome, mm-hmm. Donald. It's very nice to be here. Thanks. Tell us a little bit briefly about Brooklyn Boy. It's said, obviously, a, a boy from Brooklyn has grown up now. He's, he's a writer. and Yes. Well, Brooklyn Boy uh, is, is, for me, a return to my roots. I grew up in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. Uh, the first few plays that I had produced in New York were based in Brooklyn or inspired by my childhood in Brooklyn, certainly. And it, it was um, a couple of years ago, I was having a conversation with my, my friend Herb Gardner, the playwright who, who died last year. Uh, we spoke on the phone frequently. Um, and he, I was lamenting to him the fact that I wasn't sure I was, what I was going to write next. And he, uh, he said, well, you know, I love your Brooklyn plays. Why don't you go back to Brooklyn? And I said, it, it, took, it took me my entire life to get out of Brooklyn. Why would I go back? He said, well, you've never looked at Brooklyn from this stage in your life before, which, which was the impetus for my sitting down and really beginning to contemplate that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a mid-career, middle-aged writer. I've been doing this for a long time. And it's true. I had not really reflected on Brooklyn um, for many years now. Intentionally, I deliberately left the borough uh, in plays you know, from Sight Unseen uh, through Dinner with Friends. Uh, and there have been several others which were not set in, in this milieu at all. Um, so you know, the, the play is really a, a midlife play. And the protagonist happens to be a writer. But it, it's, it's not a writer, nor is it a nostalgia piece. It, it is not set in the past. It's all present tense. Now, the, the, the character in the play is named Eric Weiss. Yes. And he is an author who has not achieved much fame, and suddenly he has a bestseller. It's a hit book. That's number right. Number 11 that's right. out of 50. Not number 10 or 9, number 11. That's right. Which is a source of some uh, consternation, I guess, to his father and other people, like not, number, not in the top ten. Uh, <laughs> Only a Jewish parent <laughs> would, would, would nag like that. And the, the book that, uh, that he has written, some believe is autobiographical, although he denies it, and uh, the character Kenny Fleischman, who's one of the main characters in the book, people claim is really Eric That's Weiss. Right. Now, people have said, is Eric Weiss really Donald Margulies? Well, uh, and I'm sure you've been asked this. No, a I, I, I've times. been asked this question a lot. I, sure. I was asked this last night. I, I, I spoke to a group last night at the theater, uh, and my response to that, and I don't mean to sound disingenuous, but but everything in this play is autobiographical, and nothing in this play is autobiographical. All of the concerns that are in this play are things that I relate to profoundly, or, or else I couldn't have written about them. But the incidents in the play are not. A reflection of my own life. You know, it's interesting when you when you do base something on autobiography, or at least what I have found to be the case, is that you you reinvent what you know. It becomes sort of a bizarro world or an alternate universe of what you know. If I had not been a happy man, if I had not been a well-adjusted man, how would I have dealt with with certain things happening in my life? And that it really, from from that basis, one extrapolates, and you find that you're creating a character who is not yourself, and yet. 
reflects your your concerns. Well, as you talk about what parts of you are in the show, it was interesting that I read one interview from uh, mid-January which specifically said you did not go out to Brooklyn, you did not revisit your old haunts, you hadn't been there in 25 That's years. Right. And then I found another clip from about two weeks later mm-hmm. where the New York Times took you out to Brooklyn. That's exactly right. So, that was the premise of that piece. So what was the whole experience of going back and and did that in any way make you think differently about things you put in the play? No, actually, no. It did not change my perception. But but I have to tell you that the invitation to join Joe Berger of the New York Times on a nostalgic journey to Brooklyn came the night before my Broadway opening of Brooklyn Boy. My initial response was, I can't do this. My My show is opening tomorrow. I went with Joe to Brooklyn on the morning of my opening. So there was something very emotionally full about taking this excursion across the bridge with a reporter who was basically asking me questions every step. But we spent five or six hours together going to Sheepshead Bay and Brighton Beach. And not Beach a theater reporter. He was, no, no. He's the metro reporter at right. the New York Times. So he was really viewing it as a, a, a successful writer going back to his roots, which is something I did not do in preparation for writing the play, but it coming on the the morning of the opening really was was quite a, a bittersweet and rather emotionally loaded situation. Did you, uh, much as uh, in the play, Eric Weiss discovers one of uh, his old friends, his old friend discovers him actually in a hospital scene, Ira, Ira Zimmer, is it? That's right. Yeah. And, Played by Ari Gross. Right. Very well, by the way. Yes. Uh, and they kind of, to some degree of angst on, I guess, the part of Eric Weiss, uh, relive some childhood experience. They haven't seen each other in 25 years. When this reporter took you back to Brooklyn, did you look up any of your old neighborhood friends? Were they still there? Did you get in touch with anybody? Or did you just drive past the house and say, that's where I used to live? You know, it, it really was a kind of uh, uh, tour of, of, of landmarks from my childhood. We went back to the apartment house that I lived in from the age of two. I lived there until I was nine, and it was very striking to see how the terrain, the surrounding terrain is virtually the same. Uh, The names on the doorbells have all gone from Eastern European Jewish names to Russian names, Mm. predominantly Russian names. Mm. Uh, You know, there has been an influx of of Russian immigrants to Brooklyn uh, that really began in the 70s and has continued. And it's interesting to see the progression uh, socioeconomically of that group. You know, moving up and in, in, into places where the previous generation's Jewish immigrants mm-hmm. began in, in New York. So were there any Irish Zimmers still there that you knew or had they pretty much all moved away? Do you know, I honestly have uh, – I have close friends from my childhood uh-huh. still. Uh, not from my childhood, but from, from the age of 10. That's childhood. Uh, and – that's, but that's a person who's been a constant in my life. I have two people like that, actually. And they are, you know, serious touchstones in my life. You know, on, on the other hand, there are people who resurface who I barely remember and who have very vivid associations with me that, that I sometimes find a little perplexing, much as Eric does in his encounter with Ira in the cafeteria of Maimonides Hospital. Well, in, in your play, uh, the first scene is... Uh Eric is in the hospital visiting his father, Manny Weiss, who has been a shoe salesman for 33 years or whatever. And he gives his father the book that mm-hmm. he has written. This is the character in the play. He gives yes. him the book. And he says, Dad, you'll see a lot of familiar people and things in here. Yes. When your relatives, your friends came to see the show, did they say, was that me up on stage that you were writing about? Just as in the, bo- in the, in the play, uh-huh. people ask him, Iris says, that's me that you're writing about. You know, Kenny Fleischman really is me, isn't it? And, <laughs> well, of course, Eric Weiss denies that. 
Right. But, you know, I think that my friends uh, have, have known me and have followed my work long enough to, to know not to go there. Right. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, okay, that's good. You know, it's, it's like the stand-up comic, you know, people worry that they're going to be part of the routine. But, I, th- but I, you know, I, do th- I think they appreciate it on a, on a very uh, personally gratifying uh, level to see these, these reflections of experience that we shared in many instances put on stage in, in, in these new ways, you know, in, in a reinvented way. My, most of my relatives are, are gone. My parents, have, my parents have been dead for a long time. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, my mother died when I was in my 20s, my uh-huh. early 20s. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, losing, losing one's parent early on, just as you're sort of separating and individuating, uh-huh. is, is, was really a, a watershed time. You know, it, it really was sort of a – it was sort of before her death and after her death. And it, it, it has clearly influenced uh, themes that have, have obsessed well, me as a playwright ever since. It comes up in sight unseen. It, it does. It comes up in sight unseen. It, it's, it's dealt with the, the death of a mother is, is uh, the centerpiece well of what's wrong with this picture. What's wrong with this picture, yeah. exactly, which is about a, a Jewish mother who comes home on the last night of, of Shiva, of mourning, to clean the house. And it's the mourning for her. Yes, it was her Shiva. It was, well, it's her, was her death. It well, was we're going to come back and talk about that as, as one of your early plays in a few minutes. I did want to ask, this: the production of Brooklyn Boy that's, that's playing right now, and we should say at the Manhattan Theater Club's Biltmore Theater on Broadway, um, it's, as I understand it, the third production of Brooklyn Boy because it was first done at South Coast Rep, but it's also running in Paris right that's now? That's right. It's, it's, it's a hit in Paris, much to my delight mm-hmm. and amazement. Mm-hmm. It's been running in Paris since September. They're uh, recasting the lead and extending the play through June. Uh, and, you know, what, it's, 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 it's been a wonderful surprise to because see that. you look at – you know, we're talking so much about your revisiting Brooklyn mm-hmm. and, and the Brooklyn influences. And so for the show to first go up in beautiful Costa Mesa, California at South Coast Rep that's and right. then to be turning up in Paris before it actually makes it to New York. Well, that's – it's a curious journey. And let me just explain that. that uh, I've had a very long association with a, a major and uh, regional theater on the West Coast called South Coast Repertory, which is based in Orange County, California. And they have commissioned plays not only for me but from a tremendous uh, um, well of playwriting talent in America. They're sort of a stealth theater. And my association with South Coast dates back to the late 80s. So Brooklyn Boy was a commission just as uh, my play Collected Stories began as a commission at South Coast and so did Sight Unseen. So that they are my West Coast home if Manhattan Theater Club is my East Coast home. So the play began its life in Orange County this summer with this cast that is now on Broadway. We took a brief hiatus. The Paris production was something completely uh, tangential. It it came about through a relationship that I developed uh, in Paris over uh, Dinner with Friends, which was was a long-running hit in Paris. And so do you go over and see – have you been over to see the My Paris wife and production? I went to the premiere you, of the – Do you know enough French to, I recognize <laughs> to see what's my happening play. to the translation? <laughs> I, I recognize the play and Most I see that, see that the laughs are coming in the right places. Uh, and what was tremendously gratifying was to see how people supply their own experience to something as specific as this. It, and it becomes a universal experience. Clearly, that is, that is what's happening in Paris. 
Well, you mentioned uh, casting a moment ago of the Paris play. I think this version, the New York version, is brilliantly cast. It is. Adam Arkin, who is on stage literally every minute of the show, as Eric Weiss, the son who has written the book. That's right. What was involved in casting Adam? uh, Well, Adam, I've had a long association now with the Arkins. Uh-huh. There are a few of them floating around there. A few Arkins. <laughs> the, the, Adam is the son of Alan Arkin. Sure. And, uh, and his brother Matthew uh, starred in the original New York production of Dinner with Friends. Mm-hmm. Adam uh, and I met in 1992 when he replaced the originating actor in Sight Unseen. So that's, that's where our relationship began there. And it, it, it was solidified through my working with Matthew, his brother. And as this play was coming together, uh, Adam was really the first person I called. I just had a sense that um, that he would be right, that he would, he would have the right intelligence and the, the sensibility mm-hmm. and the wit and the the subtlety. Well, I think that Adam is giving an extraordinary performance. It's one of those subtle uh, Bill Murray and Lost in Translation right. kinds of performances. You know, there's something just so true and and simple. Well, it's, it's a well, tricky part because it it's a man who's not entirely in touch with his feelings and exactly. he's kind of built up a lot of barriers that, that are starting to tumble down. Well, and the way the play is structured is that he is the constant, as you said. He right. is on stage virtually the entire play. Right. And there are, there are these people who enter his, his little universe uh, with whom he has a scene, scenes that are, are very much like little one-act plays, so that every actor gets to shine in a scene with Adam, uh, and then it, you know, hopefully all comes together in the end. Well, each, each scene is 15, 20 minutes long, whatever. That's and they're, right. They're people that he either has known or meets along the way in his life. And what occurred to me as I was watching the play the other day, uh, they all seem so real, even though many of them are caricatures of the Hollywood movie right, producer or right. whatever. But they seem like they could be real people. And some of the relationships, such as the very first uh, scene with Eric and his father, Manny, yes. they seem like real people. Uh, how, how do you, you vision this when, when you're writing? Are you seeing a person in your mind? Well, you know, playwright, uh, playwriting is, is, I think, very much like uh, improvisation. It's, it's like acting in a way because you begin to embody both roles. And it, you feed off of, of a response. You feed a response and then you feed off of it. And it's really just, I think, a, a matter of being as truthful to each character as you, as you can be. Now, th- that first scene uh, is very funny, but it's, there are no jokes in it. Right. It's all That's character right. humor. It's all laughter of recognition. Oh, sure. And I, I don't really know how to write jokes. I honestly don't. But it's it's wonderful to hear the audience's response uh, and to, to, to feel as if they've been somewhere by mm-hmm. the end of the play. Well, there's, I, I would doubt if there's even a single joke per se in the show, yet you laugh throughout it because it is so human and so real. There's one exchange between Manny the father and Eric the son that I want to ask you about this. I'm paraphrasing. I hope I got the lines pretty much right. But this, in a sense, in in essence, is a line that you wrote that the father says to the son who's the the writer. How do you do it? Mm -hmm. How do you sit down and build something that wasn't there before? Mm -hmm. So, Donald, how do you do it? You know, it's, it's interesting. When I got to that point in the play... I wrote a very long uh, lyrical speech for Eric to deliver to his father about the creative process. And I decided, no, that is, that is, that's ridiculous. It's pretentious. Uh-huh. It's pompous. Uh-huh. It's, vi- it's a very mysterious thing to explain. And it, it, what was a challenge to me is the writer writing about the writer being asked by his taciturn father, finally, 
what do you do? How do you do it? He just doesn't understand what his son is doing all these years. No, there's, there's a lack of comprehension. And with that lack of comprehension is a kind of subtle and sometimes not so subtle hostility. So what I finally came down to were a few words, which was Eric's – in response to how do you do it, he says, I invent and imagine and remember. And that is really the essence of, of writing, I think. So that's both a real life as well as within the play, real life. Well, it's, it's an expression that I uh-huh. uh, provide right, right. for Eric after having written a rather ponderous speech, which I happily cut. Now, when, when you were writing this play, Brooklyn Boy, you had been working or you had known Adam Arkin since 1992. You had worked with him before. Did you have him in mind as Eric? Not, or that uh, honestly, no, not as I was writing. I didn't really have anyone particular in mind. But as the play evolved uh, and Adam and I reconnected, I began to see that um, you know we're, we're at similar stages in our lives, and uh, I think that he is there's such a, a wonderful kind of gravitas to him as an actor uh-huh. now uh-huh. that he could not have possessed when he was in his 30s, and uh, and that was very gratifying to see as well, and it was something I wanted to tap into. So no, I didn't begin with him in mind, but I began to see that he, that he would really suit this role very well. Now, I want to jump back because it's it's been a very interesting year and we'll come around to it because, of course, you've actually had two shows on Broadway in That's the current right. Broadway season, one a revival and, and Brooklyn Boy, um, your newest. But let's jump back to the very beginning because I was reading and I didn't even realize this, though I've, I've known your career for so many years, that your first few shows in New York were not particularly well received. This is true. This is not a. This is not a secret. And so, kind of like the Eric Weiss's first two novels. But so, well, again, we we don't want to sit and draw the autobiographical parallels with Brooklyn Boy, but but you know, you are a teacher of playwriting. That's right, at Yale, Yale. Mm-hmm. and. I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about what that does to a young artist when you have uh, some fairly high-profile productions. You had Found a Peanut at uh, the Public, right? Um, and the original version of What's Wrong with This Picture, which I didn't open, which never opened. That's right. At Manhattan Theater Club, it never even got seen except by by a couple of weeks worth of subscribers. That's right. And and the fact that a show doesn't even come to fruition. How do you go on, and how did how did that uh, that affect you as a writer? Well, I tell you, revenge is a very strong motivator, <laughs> and, and I was I was at a vulnerable point. Obviously, uh, uh, what happened was that I was reviewed too too soon by the chief critic of the New York Times. And when you say too soon, I wasn't too soon ready. in the run, or you no, as no, a writer? No, no, I mean I was... as a writer. I, I I should not have had to endure the scrutiny of the chief critic of the Times for my first full-length play, which was done at a, a very small theater off-off-Broadway called the Jewish Repertory Theater. And the only reason why the chief critic came to it was because the actress starring in it had just won the Tony Award. Mm. That was the news, not that this, you know, Schmendrick had written something, <laughs> but because Dinah Manoff was in it and she had just won the Tony for I Ought to Be in Pictures, the Neil Simon play. So that was unfortunate. It was not a particularly good production. And... Unfortunately, it was the first time that that Frank Rich was seeing my work. It was just a few months after that that Joe Papp produced Found a Peanut, which Joe was convinced and had convinced me was going to catapult me at that point. And that was that was uh, 1984. It didn't catapult me, uh, primarily because the the Times didn't like it. Uh, the other reviews were very good, but it was the first time I learned that without the New York Times, you don't really exist. 
And then it was just a few months after that that I was about to have my third production in New York in the space of about a year at the Manhattan Theater Club. And it was a production of What's Wrong With This Picture um, that starred the late Madeline Kahn and uh, Bob Dishy. And, uh, you know, on the face of it was was a very attractive company. The play wasn't working to my satisfaction. And I was at a very vulnerable point because I felt that three strikes and I would be out. You know, all you know, the, these, these punches coming so rapidly in such rapid succession. I, I truly felt that if I had been pummeled yet again, it would be very difficult to recover. So what I did was something that playwrights rarely exercise, which is the prerogative not to open a play, which was not a popular decision at the time. But I did feel that it was a matter of self-preservation. And I think I was right. I think I did the right thing. So we should mention then that in the case of What's Wrong With This Picture, about nine years later, that play did come to Broadway. Had you done a lot of work in the meantime on the play? Was it really more what you wanted it to be? Well, I had done a lot of work on the play, um, uh, significant work, maybe not structurally, but significant rewriting. Um, so in, in 85 was the original production. And then in 1990, the new draft essentially had its New York debut at the Jewish Repertory Theater where it got wonderful reviews. And it was on the basis of that production that it was optioned for a commercial run. What happened then in 1992, because these things take so long to happen, was that I had my breakthrough success with Sight Unseen. So suddenly I was on the radar when I had been sort of you know, off the radar. And the production morphed from what should have been a fairly modest off-Broadway commercial run into a Broadway production. It attracted, you know, the great Broadway actress Faith Prince, who was coming off of her success in Guys and Dolls, and there was something very momentous about it. It was the first play that Joe Mantello did on Broadway. Uh, but it was not a good production. It was a, it was a bad production. Mm -hmm. So it took me all of those years to finally get to Broadway with this play, but it, you know, unfortunately was not the production that I, that I dreamed about. It was sort of the nightmare production. And what's remarkable about your trajectory in terms of, of the recognition and the production of your work is that while you are a Pulitzer Prize winner of a few years ago, you had this one brief Broadway run in 94. And it was not until this year that in the one year you've got two Broadway shows. Your success has been extraordinary in terms of the regional theaters and off-Broadway. Um, and as you talk about your breakthrough, Sight Unseen, I mean, that was one of those plays that after its initial production on really this, even the smaller of the two city center stages at MTC mm -hmm. was seen at almost every theater in the country. Well, we, we moved from the small but theater. It did move into we the We moved to the Orpheum. Oh, I I so sight unseen, that. sight unseen actually ran for almost nine months off Broadway, which, which you know in the early nineties was was a rather respectable yeah. run, uh, and it was a season that had a few well received plays. I, I can think of Marvin's Room was running at the same time, um, but in the the subsequent season, sight unseen I think was was the most produced play yeah. in the regional theaters, and so. You know, we talked about what's wrong with this picture from 85 to 94, sight unseen from 92 to 2000. 2004. Right. Um, you've changed as you, as you talk about the different perspective mm -hmm. on life. What was it like to go back and work on that play in a major 
a major production as opposed to being closer to the to the obviously the time when you first wrote it. Well, Sight Unseen um, uh, on Broadway was sort of a, a charmed uh, venture because, as I said, it was my breakthrough. It was also the breakthrough for a young actress named Laura Linney who played a supporting role, the supporting role in Sight Unseen. She had graduated to stardom. I, you know, I had achieved recognition in the theater. She, of course, is a, a very highly regarded theater actress. She's one of the few film stars who re- repeatedly uh, comes to Broadway. So the, they were, there was something very right about revisiting this play. Dan Sullivan and I had had our, our, a wonderful time working on Dinner with Friends. And it, it, several people began to uh, make noises about revisiting Sight Unseen after that because even though it did have a relatively long run, 12 years in the life of a play in New York is, is a generation. It's not half a generation. It's, it, 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 the play was new to so many people and you know, that is, is very thrilling uh, it was it was wonderful to to revisit the play and to see the, how well it it sat on the the Biltmore stage. Um, so I you know I didn't tinker with it if that's what you mean. I, I it, the play that was produced uh, this spring is the play that I wrote in the early nineties. Are you ever tempted to go back with your plays and tinker, or once they're done, they're done? I pretty much I, I I'm able to walk away from them. I, I view them as the flawed efforts of a younger writer. Uh, sometimes I'll change things that have been nagging at me, but you know, not not a rethinking or a reconsideration of something, but really maybe cutting and and consolidating. How about when a play such as we mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, Brooklyn Boy, is now being done in France in Paris? Did you have to do any tinkering with that other than language? Well, the, the curious thing that happened uh, in Paris is that uh, I sat down in the theater and found that they had translated the first draft. Oh. <laughs> so that the the hey. translator who, to whom I had been emailing my changes because I was in rehearsal with the play in California while they were in rehearsal in Paris, he decided that he he liked his draft better. <laughs> he just <laughs> so, made that decision. So yeah, so it, I just accepted that. I mean, what's what's wonderful is that the play got great reviews in the first draft. I don't know what that tells me, huh. but uh, but it did seem to it seemed to work for for Paris audiences. Anything significant between the first draft and what we see now at the Billboard? Yes, there is York? something. Uh, there are several significant things actually. Uh, one is that a, a scene that takes place in a hotel room mm-hmm. in the play uh, it originally was a post-coital scene. Uh-huh. And now it is very much uh, uh, a pre-coital scene. And I, th- I just felt that that completely galvanized that uh-huh. scene for me. Uh-huh. You know, it, it, it gave it a, a, a tremendous subtext that it did not have otherwise. That, so that is significant. Mm-hmm. And the other is that in the original draft, uh, the estranged wife of Eric Weiss was, was African-American. Oh. So they, an African actress is playing – an Algerian actress is playing that role in Paris. And that character doesn't exist in the New York version except in, she, by, being mentioned. The, the fact of her race is not a factor right. any longer, which is why uh, she she's not being played by an African-American. But also there's there's nobody cast in that role because the, the one woman is his girlfriend, not his wife. No, that no, is no, – no, that's, that's the ex-wife. That's the ex-wife. Oh, oh, she is the ex-wife. That's the ex-wife. Oh, oh, okay. That's the ex-wife. But that's an interesting comment because you talked about the production coming from South Coast to New York. That was one casting change that the show yes. did undergo. So you've now seen three actresses that's right. playing, playing that's right. that role, Dana Reeve. Didn't st- created the role. stay with the production, created the role at South Coast. And, of course, Polly Draper was a very different type than, than Dana Reeve, it would seem to me. But 
again, just the shadings that they bring to it, you didn't change the script in any way for oh, the Oh, no, actresses. I did rewrite that scene. Not for oh, the actress so right. much, but because of my own restlessness. Um, you know, I, I tweaked that scene probably more or I labored over that scene more than I did any others. Um, and uh, and finally found – you see, the, the, sometimes the, the, the challenge is not to write expositorily, you know, to, to be as concise as possible. And I found that uh, I needed less and less hmm. exposition and really just let them behave so that what we saw through their behavior was a microcosm of the relationship without hearing about the relationship. When you're talking about your craft, I'm very curious. As somebody who spends time teaching people to write plays, do you listen to your own lessons or do you need other people in the same way that you may look at plays and have people, you know, make suggestions mm-hmm. to your students? Do you have people who, who guide you? Um, some. Uh, I, one, of, one of the reasons why I teach, and I've been teaching for 15 years now, is that it forces you to articulate things that you do without even thinking about them. So that you know these these very lofty tenets that I can spout about playwriting is something that you know one takes for granted because it's what what one does every day. But it, when I'm teaching, I'm able to put into words things that I I practice, and then I I can sort of reawaken to the import of the things that I'm saying. So it, it I find that teaching helps keep me honest and keep me lubricated, just in terms of craft. Now, with with any of your shows. Once you've written the basic show, you may tinker with it as it's being developed. What is your relationship then with the director and the actors? Do you say, here's what I had in mind, or do you just kind of say, here's my script, go for it? How, how do you work with them? Well, you know, as a playwright, I, I work alone a lot of the time. Writing I'm, it. Yes, I'm, I'm alone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that I, I love the production process. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a director uh, such as Dan- Daniel Sullivan, with whom I've had the privilege to work three times now, three different plays but numerous times on each of those plays, um, there's there's a great excitement I experience in handing a new play to Dan, handing a play to Dan. Uh-huh. And um, uh, he's, he's terrifically uh, astute in his dramaturgy and um, he, he's consummate. You know, he really be- – it begins to evolve for him – scenically uh, as it did for me on the text. So I, I, I really enjoy those initial conversations. In rehearsal, I'm present for the first few days. Um, if it's a new play, we sit around the table for a few days. The actors get comfortable. By the time the actors are feeling sufficiently comfortable to get up and walk around, uh, I leave. I, I just I say goodbye. I, I will have done some tweaking and some explaining in those first few days. But once the actors are up and, and are walking around, I feel that it's time for me to, to get out of their way. It would, be, it would be as if they were leaning over my shoulder during a first draft and scowling at me. So then as they're rehearsing, if the director, in this case Daniel Sullivan or somebody else, feels it's not quite working, they pick up the phone, call you and say – Hey, we need new lines in here, Donald. It's just yes, not working. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, so that as I said, I would disappear for a period of time, wait for that call. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, when there'd be a stumble through or something like that. When the actors are, you know, there's the initial blocking of a play, and the actors are able to use props and and go through the motions really for the first time straight through. That's when I'm called in. Uh, if if there are certain line problems, uh, you know, Dan is a, an inveterate emailer. Mm-hmm. So much of our collaboration occurred via email uh, where he would um, 
you know, say that line is just not working or whatever. Or the actor says my character wouldn't say that. But when that's by email, I'm curious. You as an author, it's not like you're sitting in the room seeing it for yourself. You are trusting that. Dan says it doesn't work. It doesn't work for the actor. It doesn't work for him as a director because, of course, in some cases, certainly you've had wonderful people in your productions and when you're working with Dan, it's great. But you could have an actor who may just not be able to to find the line the way you wanted it to be heard, but you'll respond to the director regardless. That's right. That's Hmm. right. And, you know, and I'm very fortunate because Dan is someone I trust completely, completely. Mm -hmm. So if, if he says to me, you know, you really don't need that. And I'm not ready to let go of it. A few days later, he'll say, so how are you feeling about that? <laughs> you know? And I say, well, give me another day. I just need to see it again. And then, of course, I would cut it mm-hmm. or change it or clarify it or whatever. But he, he has really an unerring sense that, I have, that I've got to trust. I've got to listen uh, to what he has to say. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to feel that a director trusts the material so much and knows it so well that you can really use this person as the as the, the best collaborator you can you can dream of. I want to ask a very complicated question. I feel like I'm about to be the the interviewer character in uh, in Sight Unseen, um, but it is something that's certainly thematic in your work, which is the issue of Jewishness mm-hmm. in in your work. And so many of your plays have dealt with Jewish themes explicitly. Um, and even the fact that you chose at one point to go back and do an adaptation of a very, very old piece uh, of Jewish literature called God of Vengeance. That's right. Um, it is perhaps ironic, perhaps an echo of, of some of the things you've said in your own work that certainly the piece that you wrote, which had the greatest acclaim, Dinner with Friends, Receiving the Pulitzer, is perhaps your least explicitly Jewish play. And, of course, there is this line that you've written in Brooklyn Boy about it's easier to uh, read about Jews on the page than actually see them in uh-huh. person. I'm just curious. How did Dinner with Friends almost seems outside of the main themes you've worked with? How did that come about and and how does the Jewishness play or not play into every time you sit down to write? Well, it, it probably does play into everything I sit down to write whether I'm aware of it or not. Because I, I firmly believe that we are the products of our childhoods, period, that we are that child. No matter how far we go or far, how far we stray from our roots, we are that person who was formed in childhood. So the, the, Jew, the cultural Jewishness that I grew up with, not the religious Jewishness, mind you, but the, cultural, the culturalness of Jewishness was so a part of my daily life as a child. Uh, that it's it's I, I can't deny it. It's there now. Everything that I write, you know, requires different ingredients. Just as a chef would use different ingredients, you know, stylistically, a, a story would demand to be told linearly or non-linearly. Or in the case of Sight Unseen, there's a there's a jumbled chronology. Again, it's the story that dictates what the ingredients are. So that you know, in Dinner with Friends, it was it was. It was not not a, a, a conscious effort not to write uh, Jewishness, but because the character of Gabe in Dinner with Friends is arguably a Jewish character, uh, although you wouldn't have known it to see Dennis Quaid play the movie. Yeah. But um, but it, it it 
it, it represented sort of another phase in my development as a writer. You know, I've, I've described Sight Unseen as sort of the bridge between Brooklyn and the larger world. And I, I do think it did serve that function for me. Um, I've written many other plays that have no Jewish content. Um, it is interesting uh, uh, to me that, that Dinner with Friends did win the Pulitzer uh, and that it did not have any overt Jewish content. I had been a finalist twice before for the Pulitzer for Collected Stories, which does have uh, Jewish themes in it, and, uh, and Sight Unseen, which, which clearly does. Hmm. Now, you mentioned that you believe you're the product of your childhood. Right. What was your childhood like, both culturally but also in relation to the theater and developing your, your career as we know it now? Well, I, I grew up in a lower middle class uh, Jewish household in Sheepshead Bay and Brighton Beach and Coney Island. My father was a salesman. My mother was, was a stay-at-home mother for the, most of my childhood. We didn't have much money, but and we were not religious people. So my, my family did not go to synagogue, but we went to Broadway. Uh, my parents were of the generation, uh, you know, sort of the, the Depression era, post-World War II, mm-hmm. uh, middle class in New York City who revered Broadway. And they instilled that sense of excitement in me and my brother. You know, so in the, in the mid-60s when we would have a school vacation, we did this a, a couple of times. My, my father uh, would take his week's vacation and we would take the D train into Manhattan from Brighton Beach and – stay at a cheap hotel in Midtown and try to see seven plays in that week. Oh, wow. And mind you, that was in the day when a middle-class family could actually do something like that. Actually it was, afford to go to it a was affordable. It was, it was seven before, times it was one before week. the half-price ticket booth, so you were paying Well, that's true. Free. It was. But I also remember that we would spend, you know, like $3.50 to sit in the balcony, which mm-hmm. was not that much more than a movie in those days. Uh, you, you know, movies were probably $2 mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, so the exposure that that uh, I was given at that age stayed with me. It, it didn't mean that I knew at the age of eight that I wanted to be a playwright, but it did instill in me an, a sense of exhilaration at the at the possibility of live theater. Do you recall what your first Broadway show was that you saw in a theater and your reaction to it, your feelings about it? The first play I saw, not the first musical, but the first play I ever saw was A Thousand Clowns by Herb Gardner, who became my friend. And uh, and I, I was about eight and I, I remember quite vividly sitting, sitting there uh, watching Jason Robards and Sandy Dennis and Gene Sachs and Barry Gordon. Uh, and being absolutely transfixed by it, and uh, and that, you know, and of course we saw lots of musicals, but that was really the first play where people talked and behaved on stage without the benefit of song, and I found it you know to be you know completely thrilling. So you had seen musicals prior to this yes. this play. Yeah, we we always we always called like the third and fourth cast replacements for musicals. <laughs> musical. You know, so I saw Mimi Hines in Funny Girl, uh-huh. and uh, not not Streisand. <laughs> not Streisand. You know, I can't say I, I saw any of the legendary performances, but I did see the, the productions. So now, as a playwright, musicals don't interest you. Oh, musicals interest me a great. Deal. I love I love a good musical. But but as a playwright, to write a musical, I would love to write the book of the musical. Uh, I'm uh, periodically I'm sent material that I I feel that I I simply cannot imagine devoting two years of my life to, um, but 
I'm I'm very uh, intrigued by the form. I always have been. It's a very different process writing it's a musical very because you're collaborating yeah. with other writers since we presume you're not writing songs at home in your spare time. Right. I did, you know, my play The Loman Family Picnic uh, does have a musical comedy uh, that explodes out of the second act after a, a terrible family confrontation. And that was a, a mini musical. It's about 10 minutes long that I collaborated on with David Shire. David did the music and I did the lyrics. But it was, it was really just a chance to kind of do a microcosm of a musical hmm. that, uh, that I, I, I delighted in. It was, it was great fun. You touched earlier, you commented on uh, the film of Dinner with Friends. Mm-hmm. And as we've asked about musicals, you had the opportunity um, to adapt your own work yes. uh, for the HBO film of Dinner with Friends. Um, is that something writing for film that that interests you as well, or, or it, again, it's a different form of writing? Well, it it, it does uh, it does mean that you use a different part of your brain than than when writing plays. I have I have been writing screenplays as a writer for hire for almost twenty years. Hmm. So you know whatever success I may have enjoyed in the theater, I have subsidized that career in the theater by writing movies, most of which have never gotten, nor will they ever get made. Now, tell us about this, this whole writer for hire. How, how does that work? People call you and say, I need a script? Well, you know, most of the work that I've done as a screenwriter has been adaptation. Uh-huh. So I'm sent a, a book, a novel or nonfiction biography, an article. Uh, in some cases, it's adapting an existing screenplay into something new. Uh-huh. Um, and what I'm, so I'm, I'm sent this material, and then I, what I need to do is begin to envision it in, in terms of uh, a narrative structure. That, that is a, a, a real challenge. It's, it's, it's a very interesting challenge. So when I say writer for hire, it means that I have a contract. I'm paid mm-hmm. for it mm-hmm. uh, in various stages, you know, commencement, delivery, polish, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's been a series of those things that have really uh, helped uh, help fund my, my Help, playwriting obsession. Helps pay the bills at home. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, but the fact is, is in those cases, it's not that you wake up one morning and say – I want to write this. As a movie, you mean? Yeah. It's... No, I, I, I'm not – I don't think I'm that facile to, to write something uh, original right. in that but sense. But in terms of film. the writer for hire, that it's yes. somebody approaches you That's and right. says, here's, here's something. Do you think you can That's right. put, put your stamp on it as opposed to with a play where it is other than South Coast Rep occasionally calling up and saying, OK, we'll commission you. Would you do something? That's right. It's still you get to write what, what you want to write. It was interesting coming back to Dinner with Friends because uh, I'm very curious about it. That was not a South Coast show, that, or at least it started at the Humana Festival That's right. at Louisville. That's right. Which gave it immediately a higher platform to start from because of the exposure that the Humana Festival gets. For better year. and for worse. So why do you say that? Well, because you, the, the Humana Festival uh, of New American Plays uh, has been a tradition in, at the Actors Theatre of Louisville for I'm not sure 30 years or, or more. And it's a, it's a fabulous festival of new work in America that has now uh, over the years attracted international attention. And certainly plays uh, obviously Dinner with Friends which came out of there but we go back to Crimes of the Heart. Uh, That's right. Began at the Humana Festival. Certainly, a number of notable plays. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. The Gin Game uh, also uh, was a, a Pulitzer winner in its in its day. Yeah. Um, so, so you know that in that tremendous scrutiny is is a, a wonderful thing, but it, it 
things really could have blown up in my face that opening night of Dinner with Friends in Louisville. They didn't. But it was it was at that opening night where all these people I knew from New York were suddenly in Kentucky <laughs> to see my new play where I sense, oh, my God, it could all end tonight. Where but is, it didn't. Whereas at South Coast, although you certainly get critics in to see it, there is a huge distance in terms of, there of is. familiarity. Going to yeah. the Atlanta Festival, I was one of those people there. You know, it's you know, it's like being at a Broadway opening, even though this is a brand new play that has perhaps had one or two previews. Right, and that's it, one or two previews. So, in the journey from Humana to what was then a commercial production here in New York, we did stop at South Coast Rep. Though. You did go to South Coast. Yes, we had an interim production because I did do some work on it, and I was working with a new director. Daniel Sullivan took over. At that so that point. was the first time you yes. and Dan, yes. Had worked together. Now yeah. you're you're a product of your childhood. Yes. You work mostly alone when you're writing. Mm-hmm. Do you, any are there any current influences in what you write? In other words, does your wife say, Donald, you've been talking about this for months, for years. Why don't you write a play about? It? I mean, do you, well, do you get ideas from people, or do you? I, I do get ideas from yeah. people. Yeah. Um, uh, the the Loman family picnic actually came out of a comment that my wife made, much as what you just stated. Uh-huh. Which is uh, – it was, it was shortly after my father's death and I found myself talking about facets of my, my upbringing that I'd never discussed before, that I had suppressed. <laughs> and uh, Lynn suggested that, you know, there's something there. Uh-huh. Uh, just as Herb in my, my fateful phone conversation with him suggested, you know, there may be something in looking back at Brooklyn. And then over the breakfast table, the dinner table, do you toss ideas out to her? Does she no. Toss ideas no. I, once, I, once I have something, I, I don't share it. Uh-huh. Because I become very fragile and protective, of very protective. Because uh-huh. all I need is a just a, the wrong kind of look or the wrong kind of question, and the whole <laughs> thing just evaporates. So then, who first sees a, a draft or a completed script? Well, is, it, is it your wife? Is it somebody else? No, no actually, um, what I do when I have a first draft, and my first drafts have been worked on for a period of time. I don't mean to suggest that you know, ding on the typewriter and that's the draft. Uh-huh. I go back, I refine, I refine in my head. But it's all you at this point. It's all me at this yeah. point. And then what I generally ha- and do and what I have been doing for many years now is I organize a reading. I have a reading of this draft. Um, and, you know, fortunately, I can call certain actors and have them come and uh, I'll get a, a, a room at New Dramatists here in New York and I'm a, an alum of this great organization. And, um, and we'll sit and I'll get to hear it, maybe with the director, maybe not. But it's really for me to hear it. That's the first time anybody has seen it. Yes. E- even your wife hasn't seen it. That's that right. Point. My wife wow. comes to first readings. Hmm. She flew out to California for the first reading of Brooklyn Boy at the Pacific Playwrights uh-huh. Festival. She had not read it, and it was it, it was great. She came to the first reading of Sight hmm. Unseen that I had with Kate Nelligan and uh, Peter Friedman. Hmm. Now, as you're sitting alone writing these things, what are you currently working on? Can you talk about anything that you have well, I'm uh, I'm working on a new commission for South Coast Repertory, uh-huh. but it's it's a play that's intended for family audiences. So it's not a children's play, but a play that you know should be appealing and accessible to across the, across the generations. That's my goal. But of course, I want it to be our town. <laughs> that's that's what I'm what I'm striving well, toward is something universal and hopefully timeless and and uh, that audiences of different ages will with, will embrace. With or without Jewishness in it, would that be a fact? I don't know. I honestly don't know. 
It's still too early. Sorry. You mentioned our town, and, and yes. that was something I wanted to come back to because there was this wonderful conversation. Uh, it was written up in the publication called Bomb Magazine, which right. was new to me. But um, you said, whenever I'm starting a new play, I reread Our Town. That's right. I do. What's, what's that about? Well, I could go not, on. Not what our town I about, could go on and on about our town, but well, we got a few uh, minutes. But we're, we're wrapping up. But it's. I think it's a. It's a gorgeous piece of American literature that has been largely misunderstood uh, by subsequent generations. I, I don't. Th- I, I think there's a, there's a certain disparagement toward it that maybe came out of the hip '60s or something. But when I was growing up, it, it, it was thought to be corny hmm. and uh, overproduced. But it, it was uh, in the – I guess in the 80s when Greg Mosher did that, that gorgeous production at Lincoln Center with Spalding Gray that I was thunderstruck by Our Town and realized what a, what a masterpiece it is. It, the, the spareness of it and the, um, the humanity of it, uh, the craft of Our Town is so deceptively brilliant. Well, it's one of those plays also that you think you know what it is – but if you haven't seen it in a while, I, I also think of Death of a Salesman. We think of these mm-hmm. plays as being utterly realistic. Right. And it's only when you see them that you realize how imaginative and and unrealistic that's in right. many ways they are at portraying obviously very real situations. Well, that, I mean that's that's really what's, what's going on with Our Town is that it's, it's a, an experimental play written in 1937 that defied all kinds of theatrical conventions of its day that owes a great deal to to Joyce and to stream of conscious the, the stream of consciousness in in the novel uh you know the, the fact of breaking the fourth wall in the, in the way that Wilder did and using uh, uh pantomime and lack of scenery and um it, just interjecting uh, things like a lecture on the the, uh, the the geography of Grover's Corners. All of these devices are were completely unheard of when it was first performed in 1937. You know, I, I mean, I, I claim to, to be influenced by him. John Guare, certainly. Paula Vogel. You know, so many of the, you know, uh, preeminent – Tony Kushner, absolutely. So many of the preeminent writers writing today, I think we can trace back – to Thornton Wilder. But for every play you write, you sit down. Is it a palate cleanser just before you start to look I, at the blank page? That's a good blank, way to look at it. That's page. a good way to look at it. I'm about to teach it again to my undergraduates. So um, so it's, it's a great time to revisit it. Well, Donald Margulies, currently Brooklyn boy, running at the Biltmore Theater here in New York, Manhattan Theater Club, and Pulitzer Prize winner. Thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. I enjoyed it. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman reminding everyone out there that these programs as well as all of the educational and media programs of the American Theater Wing are available online on demand for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap and thank you.